is Our American Stories. And for this next piece, you might want to listen on headphones, if possible. Through the magic of modern technology, we have managed to capture the 2017 eclipse like you'll experience nowhere else. If you don't have headphones, stop what you're doing, turn it up real loud, close your eyes, and count to ten. Here's Jesse. So my family and I took a four-hour drive up to Hendersonville, Tennessee in order to catch the 2017 eclipse in totality. Round trip, this was about 10 hours in the car for a two-minute experience that none of us will soon forget. We were directly in the path to see the moon completely cover the sun, turning the day into night. So we stopped at a city park where people were gathering with lawn chairs and what shade they could find. After finding our space out of the 100-degree sun, we sat around with dozens of other families waiting in our own sweat for the moon to block out the sun. As the event began to take place, things remained calm as people would step in and out of the sunlight, gazing up with those special glasses. A few of us tried to take pictures through the glasses with our phones, but all you could make out was a small orange little blob that nobody even wanted to post to Facebook. Even professional pictures taken with big expensive cameras don't properly capture the enormity of things like an eclipse, or or just the moon for that matter. Today we're going to bring you something a little different. This is the sound of an eclipse. So I placed my recorder on a park bench to see what we could hear when the total eclipse was directly overhead. After a little time, you could hear people start to react. Oh my God. And here's the exact moment of totality. People were frantically elated. Some were crying, some were jumping, some were crying and jumping. The sky was blacked out, with the edge of the sun lit up around a black hole on a massive scale. Now, it's almost hard to tell the difference between the sounds of pleasure and pain. It almost sounds as if God himself just parted the heavens and was descending to initiate the rapture. (laughs) With this kind of reaction to the eclipse, you might think you were at a Metallica concert. Or on the movie set when they were filming Godzilla. The truth is, an unforgettable happening like this is the kind of thing that makes people just feel alive. Another few minutes and people would have started setting things on fire and eating each other. We were all just happy apes at that moment. Jumping and hollering like we had just discovered fire. You can walk with your naked eye. 
No, yes. you can watch it. You can look at it with your eyes. Look at it. You, can, the earth. you can see the sun on the horizon. You can watch it. There's a certain beauty to the animalistic nature of human beings that comes out in a celestial event like this. We're all just children again, playing in the park with nothing on our minds other than what is directly in front of us. Yeah, look at those birds. Yeah, feel the wind. Put your glasses back on and welcome the sunlight. My God, indeed. Oh my God, guys. Perhaps no better time to use such a phrase. This is Our American Stories. And thanks for that, Jesse. And uh, family members over. We weren't in direct line, but a partial. And my goodness, it was something. I mean, the first thing you recognized was no sound. There was just no sound. There were no birds. They weren't chirping. They were confused. I think some of them thought they had a bad drinking habit. They're looking at their watches. What's going on? And then came the, the partial and the little sliver, and it got, well, it got darker out. It didn't get fully dark, but it suddenly dropped like 15 degrees, and no one talked. I mean, in our, at our house, everybody just sort of stared at the wonder of it. And then it was gone. I mean, it was just so quick. Ten hours for two minutes, Jesse. I love it. I saw a report on ABC News late last night, and a guy had flown from Australia. Someone asked him, what was he thinking? And he goes, you know what? You know, it cost me a lot of money, but me and my wife, every once in a while, we just do these things because we meet a heck of a lot of people doing them. And what a great attitude to have. And here in our American Stories... We bring you really quirky stories sometimes. The sound of the eclipse. Well, it's only Jesse can do these kind of things. Here on Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org for all that we do. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we love bringing you great commencement speeches. And they don't just happen in the summers. They happen all year round. People graduate in the winter. They graduate in the fall. And this one comes to us via a man you probably all know, at least his title, but you may not know his name. But you're going to know how he thinks and feels about life after this remarkable commencement speech. And the man is Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, John Roberts, who spoke to the graduating class at Cardigan Mountain School, a boarding school for boys grades 6 through 9. Wow, pretty heady speaker for a, for a middle school. And one of the kids in that graduating class was John Roberts' own son. The Chief Justice began his talk with these young men with something quite different than the usual platitudes that a commencement speaker delivers. From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck again from time to time so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you'll be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. My goodness, that should probably play at every graduation speech. That may be the best advice. We do a lot of commencement addresses here, by the way, on Our American Stories. That may be one of the best short passages. But John Roberts wasn't finished. Now, commencement speakers are also expected to give some advice. They give grand advice, and they give some useful tips. The most common grand advice they give is for you to be yourself. It is an odd piece of advice to give people dressed identically. <laughs> but you should, you should be yourself. But you should understand what that means. Unless you are perfect, it does not mean don't make any changes. In a certain sense, you should not be yourself. You should try to become something better. People say be yourself because they want you to resist the impulse to conform to what others want you to be. But you can't be yourself if you don't learn who you are. And you can't learn who you are unless you think about it. The Greek philosopher Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And while just do it may be a good motto for some things, it's not a good motto when it's trying to figure out how to live your life that is before you. And one important clue to living a good life is to not to try to live the good life. The best way to lose the values that are central to who you are is frankly not to think about them at all. And well said. Chief Justice Roberts then went on to give these young men, these boys, some tips. 
Over the last couple of years, I've gotten to know many of you young men pretty well, and I know you are good guys. But you are also privileged young men. And if you weren't privileged when you came here, you're privileged now because you have been here. My advice is don't act like it. When you get to your new school, walk up and introduce yourself to the person who is raking the leaves, shoveling the snow, or emptying the trash. Learn their name and call them by their name during your time at the school. Another piece of advice, when you pass by people you don't recognize on the walks, smile, look them in the eye, and say hello. The worst thing that will happen is that you will become known as the young man who smiles and says hello. <laughs> and that is not a bad thing to start with. You've been at a school with just boys. Most of you will be going to a school with girls. I have no advice for you. <laughs> the, the last bit of advice I'll give you is very simple, but I think it could make a big difference in your life. Once a week, you should write a note to someone, not an email, a note on a piece of paper. It will take you exactly 10 minutes. Talk to an adult, let them tell you what a stamp is. <laughs> you can put the stamp on the envelope, again, 10 minutes once a week. I will help you right now. I will dictate to you the first note you should write. It will say, dear, fill in the name of a teacher at Cardigan Mountain School. Say, I have started at this new school. We are reading blank in English. Football or soccer practice is hard, but I'm enjoying it. Thank you for teaching me. Put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, and send it. It will mean a great deal to people who, for reasons most of us cannot contemplate, have dedicated themselves to teaching middle school boys. <laughs> As I said, that will take you exactly 10 minutes a week. By the end of the school year, you will have sent notes to 40 people. 40 people will feel a little more special because you did. And they will think you are very special because of what you did. Now, what else is going to carry that dividend during your time at school? Chief Justice ended his speech with some song lyrics. I cited the uh, Greek philosopher Socrates earlier. These lyrics are from the great American philosopher, Bob Dylan. <laughs> They're almost 50 years old. He wrote them for his son, Jesse, who he was missing while he was on tour. They list the hopes that a parent might have for a son and for a daughter. They're also good goals for a son and a daughter. The wishes are beautiful. They're timeless. They're universal. They're good and true except for one. It is the wish that gives the song its title and its refrain. That wish is a parent's lament. It's not a good wish. So these are the lyrics from Forever Young by Bob Dylan. May God bless you and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and climb on every rung, and may you stay forever young. May you grow up to be righteous 
May you grow up to be true. May you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. May you always be courageous, stand upright and be strong, and may you stay forever young. May your hands always be busy. May your feet always be swift. May you have a strong foundation when the winds of changes shift. May your heart always be joyful. May your song always be sung. And may you stay forever young. Thank you. And there you have it, Chief Justice John Roberts, his commencement speech at the Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. What a treat for those young men. John Roberts' story, because my goodness, he bore more of himself in this than any Supreme Court opinion. John Roberts' story, his son's story, Cardigan Mountain School's story, here on Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And it's time for our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. That's following Lewis and Clark along their two-and-a-half-year adventure exploring the American West. And here's our own Alex Cortez with our eighth feature on what happened on these exact days in history over 200 years ago. August 6th, Monday. 1804. We have every reason to believe that one man has deserted. Moses B. Reed. He has been absent three days. We are determined to send back four men to take Reed, dead or alive. These are some stark words from William Clark and that are about to get starker, if that's a word. August 7th, Tuesday. 
At one o'clock, dispatched George Drewyer, Reuben Fields, William Bratton, and William Labiche back after the deserter Reed, with order, if he did not give up peaceably, to put him to death. Here's the author of The Essential Lewis and Clark, Landon Jones. When they realized that Reed had deserted, they felt personally betrayed. And the anger is, is, is very real. I mean, the, the other guys, Liberté, were hired hands, and they, in effect, had quit. But uh, it was different. And so with Reed, they said, oh, bring him back dead or alive. And they meant that. I mean, if you couldn't take him alive, you, you could, it was okay to kill him. In a way, they, they were punishing Reed, but they were also setting a pretty stern example for the rest of the men on, on the expedition that this was, this was not the way to go. Bring him back dead or alive, that message would not have been lost on the other soldiers who, who were rowing the keelboat upstream against the, the Missouri and probably getting a little discouraged themselves at times. Gary Moulton, one of the leading Lewis and Clark experts and someone who spent 20 years editing and publishing a 13-volume edition of their journals, wrote that Clark must have intentionally made this dead or alive order as clear as he did so that the responsibility of it would fall squarely on the shoulders of the captains, not on the men they sent out. Moulton also added that Nicholas Biddle, who prepared the captains' official report to the nation upon their return, struck the dead or alive order from Clark's journal. Either Clark or Biddle must not have wanted this ugly aspect of their journey in the public record. But here's Sergeant Floyd with his journal entry that described the saga in its fullest, ugliest detail. Tuesday, August 7th. On the 4th of this month, one of our men by the name of Moses B. Reed went back to our camp where we had left in the morning to get his knife, which he had left at the camp. The boat went on, and he did not return that night, nor the next day, nor night. Upon examining his knapsack, we found that he had taken his clothes and all his powder and had hid them out that night and had made that an excuse to desert from us without any just cause. Without any just cause. Upset just a little bit there, Floyd? Well, here's Landon Jones on what the details Floyd left for us mean. He had deliberately deceived them. He had hidden his powder. It was a premeditated crime. Whoa. On that shocking note, we're going to take a rather long detour away from this deserter. Why? Well, first, because we can. Second, because I say so. Third, because I'm tired of the members of the Corps of Discovery getting into trouble. Fourth, because I feel like something lighter. And fifth, because the rarely heard from Meriwether Lewis wrote about this something else. And he rarely writes. So when the dude does, I listen. We had seen but a few aquatic fowls of any kind on the river since we commenced our journey up the Missouri. This day, after we had passed the river chute, I saw a great number of feathers floating down the river. Those feathers had a very extraordinary appearance as they appeared in such quantities as to cover pretty generally 60 or 70 yards of the breadth of the river. And for three miles after, I saw those feathers continuing to run in that manner. At length, we were surprised by the appearance of a flock of pelican at rest on a large sandbar attached to a small island 
the number of which would, if estimated, appear almost incredible. Can you imagine seeing beautiful white feathers blanketing the river as you go down it for three miles? How fantastically majestic a sight. And then to see the actual flock that produced the feathers, Joseph Whitehouse put their number at five to six thousand pelicans. To be precise, they were American white pelicans, and your bird-ignorant narrator here decided to gather several of the top experts on the species. Yes, there are experts for this. In the land of the free, in the home of the brave, there are experts for everything. And here's one of them, Elisa Bartos, after I asked her what she loves about the bird. Wow, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, There are so many things. Her love for the pelican is profound, as you can tell. We had to get more specific. So here's Elisa on why all those feathers of theirs were covering the river. That's just something that happens naturally with all birds. Is they just shed their feathers or molt the, the old feathers out and new feathers come in. Um, feathers get worn over time, especially flight feathers, and they just need to be replaced. Just like an old pair of shoes, if you think the soles wear out, the feathers wear out also. And here's another expert, Colleen Moulton, on her reaction to what Meriwether Lewis didn't report. I'm surprised that he didn't mention the smell. <laughs> they, uh, the a pelican colony are large when they're congregated like that. Um, it's a, a very strong smell of guano. Guano being the excrements of, or more bluntly, the poop of the pelican, made smellier by all the fish that they eat. Their subsistence that Meriwether Lewis did report. They appeared to cover several acres of ground and were no doubt engaged in procuring their ordinary food, which is fish. And how they procured that fish is fascinating. Here's yet another expert, Russ Norvell, with the Utah Division of Wildlife Resources on their unique form of communal hunting and gathering on the water. If you're in the right place at the right time, you can see them form these sort of hemicircles and sometimes full circles. And it's a very slow, kind of graceful, fairly synchronized dipping action. They'll, they'll simultaneously plunge and, and, and emerge, uh, plunge and emerge, and as they kind of slowly encircle and uh, sometimes constrict or sometimes move in kind of a, like a slow net uh, motion. It's really, they're really quite a graceful little ballet that they work out and entrap the fish with. In this process, the pelican scoops up just a ton of water into that pouch, eats the fish, and pushes out the water. And Meriwether Lewis was determined to get an exact reading of the amount of water in that pouch, which required shooting one down first. In the present subject, I measured this pouch and found its contents five gallons of water. Five gallons? A bird holding five gallons? I immediately thought about my fridge. Think about having five different gallon jugs of water in your fridge, and then swiftly inserting all of them into just one section of your body. Whoa. Here's Elisa. It is a lot, and I just chuckled at that, and I thought, you know, I think it's amazing, first, how curious human beings are. And of course, they were incredibly curious, right? They're explorers and they're hiking across all these great places. 
And for them to have shot a bird and then investigated it, I, I can't imagine what they thought. Um, but to actually fill up the pouch with water is pretty funny. The pouch stretches, it's very elastic. It's like a balloon. And I cannot tell you if you can fit five gallons of water in the pouch, but I can tell you that what comes out of a pelican comes out in mass quantities. And when we come back, more on the life of Lewis and Clark. And my goodness, we learned so much here. The guano of pelicans. More on the life of Lewis and Clark. The most epic road trip ever. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we continue with the second portion of this fantastic eighth feature of our Lewis and Clark series, The Most Epic Road Trip Ever. And the fish that they do get in this process, they are forced to share, at least with the ones they had baby-making responsibility for, and in an outlandish manner. One of my favorite behaviors, if you will, of the American white pelican is actually it comes from the juvenile or the chick. And they just do this behavior that's called begging and convulsing. And it's literally that. When I first started the project, I remember a scientist saying to me, you know, we, we're really not sure why these chicks do this convulsive behavior. And some people have surmised that it could be oxygen deprivation because they go deep down into the pouch and into the throat of the adult to feed for up to a minute or two. Sometimes they just hang out in the in the throat of the adult, and it just looks awkward and painful and uncomfortable, um, but the adults tolerate it. And when they don't tolerate it, when the adult is done, when they've decided that's it, you're, you're done feeding, you know, the, the, the door is shut here, the kitchen's closed, the adult will walk backward and shake its head violently to the side, back and forth and back and forth, continually moving backward until that chick becomes dislodged. And the, the chick will immediately throw itself on the ground and it will scream and it will flap its wings and it will bite itself. And it's absolutely ridiculous. And it is simply a temper tantrum. If anyone has ever raised children or taken care of children, and think of it like you took, you know, your kids took you away. What would they do? And that's exactly what the baby pelican does. As soon as the adult flies away, which it will, it will not tolerate it, will not stand there for very long because the chick will continue to beg. The adult will fly off and the chick will stand up and shake itself off and start to preen its, its wings and, and, you know, compose itself and, and walk off onto the island and into a group of pelican chicks and stand there as if nothing ever happened. And I'd like to think it's slightly embarrassed, but I doubt it because it continues the behavior over and over and over again. And things get even weirder with this beautiful bird and the second largest one in America. Something that's very interesting that occurs that probably most people wouldn't know is siblicide. So the two eggs are laid and the chicks will hatch out within 24 hours of one another. So they don't hatch out at exactly the same time. So somebody will hatch, let's say, on Monday morning, and maybe by Tuesday morning, the next chick will hatch out. 
And what happens immediately out of the egg is what's called siblicide, and it's simply survival of the fittest. And one chick that's stronger will pick on the, the second chick until it dies within the first 14 days of hatching. So after, you know, an average of 14 days, then you're left with one chick who's the hardiest. And um, it's probably a good thing that two do not survive because the amount of food and resources that the parents have to put into it is tremendous. Woo, we humans got it easier. But do we? The core of Discovery might not have thought so as they're trying to hunt down their deserter Reed. Here's William Clark. 14th of August. Our party sent after the deserter and to the Otto towns have not came up as yet. August 15th. The men sent to the Ottos and in pursuit of the deserter Reed has not yet returned or joined our party. 17th August. Late this evening, one of the party sent after the deserters returned. He left the party three miles back. They caught both deserters. One of them, La Liberty, they caught, but he deceived them and got away. La Liberty's that Frenchman they had hired, and who deserted last episode. But they weren't as concerned with him, given he wasn't an official military member of the expedition. But it's still pretty flippin' hilarious for us, not them, that they caught him and he got away. Things wouldn't be so funny for the military deserter, Moses B. Reed. And the Ottawa, Missouri Indians, who they previously had a council with, returned with the party who brought back Reed. Some of their big chiefs weren't able to attend the first powwow, so they figured, why not have another one? And they had quite a reaction to how the Corps of Discovery treated Reed. 18th August. Proceeded to the trial of Reed. He confessed that he deserted and stole a public rifle, powder, and balls, and requested we would be as favorable with him as we could consistently with our oaths, which we were, and only sentenced him to run the gauntlet four times through the party, for him not to be considered in future as one of the party, and that each man, with nine switches, should punish him about five hundred lashes. The three principal chiefs petitioned for pardon for this man, after we explained the injury such men could do them by false representation and explaining the customs of our country. They were all satisfied with the propriety of the sentence and was witness to the punishment. Postponed the further consultation until tomorrow. Evening was closed with an extra gill of whiskey. William Clark said nothing about Moses B. Reed's motivation for deserting. They certainly must have asked him why he did it. Maybe they were embarrassed by the answer and didn't want it in the official records. Here's Landon Jones on what the so-called gauntlet Reed went through looked like. Two parallel lines of soldiers lined up and you run down between the two lines. As you run, you are being lashed by these guys with the whips and, and you just try to get to the end of it and, and that's what he did. Somehow, Reed got through it, but it wasn't so clear that the Corps of Discovery would get through their time with these Indians. The 19th of August, Sunday, the main chief breakfast with us, naked, covered only with blankets or buffalo robes. At 10 o'clock, we assembled the chiefs and warriors and delivered a speech. 
the speech of the big horse. This is the Missouri's chief. I heard your word and I returned. I and all my men with me will attend to your words. You want to make peace with all. I want to make peace also. The young men, when they want to go to war, where is the goods you give me? To keep them at home? If you give me some whiskey to give, a drop. I am a poor man and can't quiet without means. A spoonful of your whiskey will quiet all. Clark now returns to his own narrative. We gave one small medal to one of the chiefs and a certificate to the others of their good intentions. One of those Indians, after receiving his certificate, delivered it again to me. The big blue eyes chief petitioned for the certificate again. We would not give the certificate, but rebuked them very roughly for having object goods and not peace with their neighbors. This language they did not like at first, but at length all petitioned for us to give back the certificate to the big blue eyes. He came forward and made a plausible excuse. I then gave the certificate the great chief to bestow it to the most worthy. They gave it to him. We then gave them a dram and broke up the council. The chiefs requested we would not leave them this evening. We determined to set out early in the morning. Those people became extremely troublesome to us, begging whiskey and little articles. Gosh, this Indian begging is so blatant. The rudeness, pretty shameless. And rejecting the gifts of the Court of Discovery. Imagine doing that at Christmas. Santa, I reject your pathetic little gift. Try again, sir. But these Indians claim that they needed these great gifts, so great in their eyes, as enticements to stop them and their men from going to war with other Indians. Now, I'm a huge fan of whiskey, but I'm not sure a gift of it to me would stop me from going to war. Whiskey's not that great. Then again, it's much more readily available to me. I just get in my car and drive. Ten minutes for my fix. Not so for these Indians. This same day, Clark and Lewis had an even bigger problem fall into their lap. Sergeant Floyd was taken violently, dangerously ill. We attempt in vain to relieve him. I am much concerned for his situation. We could get nothing to stay on his stomach a moment. Seeing this particular man withering away before him was deeply personal to William Clark. Floyd was a family friend of William Clark's, and he wasn't just an ordinary trooper or a sergeant. Floyd's father had fought with Clark's older brother, George Roger Clark, back in the French and Indian War. And he, he was a Kentuckian. He, he really was family and, and, and blood. And this very young guy, 22, but who handled himself so well in the expedition. Every man is attentive to him. York, principally. York being Clark's slave. When York does pop into, into visibility, it, it's often seen very, very, very sympathetically. They like York. But even with York's help, will Sergeant Floyd survive? You'll have to tune into the next episode to find out. And great job as always, Alex. The Lewis and Clark series continues. There have been eight segments, and you can catch them all on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. 
And if you ever get the chance, go to Amazon.com and get Stephen Ambrose's Undaunted Courage. You pick it up, you will not put it down. And Lewis and Clark's memoirs, my goodness, same here. Probably the best memoirs ever written, except maybe Ulysses S. Grant's. This is Lee Habib, the Lewis and Clark story, here on Our American Story. stories and you're listening to Bob Dylan his Grammy Award performance for Time Out of Mind which put him back on the map I don't know the 10th time and no singer songwriter has ever come before or after like Bob Dylan like him or not he won the Nobel Prize and he gave a speech that was so remarkable we're going to play it for you because it was essentially a defense of the western canon that is Real literature. The range and power of Dylan's art will stun you from his early folk days to his revolutionary recordings like Blonde on Blonde and Blood on the Tracks, from his remarkable Christian period, Ring Them Bells, Every Grain of Sand, Gotta Serve Somebody, their gospel masterpieces, right through to his stark blues period, which you were just listening to, and the writing on records like Time Out of Mind and Love and Theft. Listen to the song It's Not Dark Yet, and try not to hear literature and the call of literature's great themes. And we're going to play that bumping out of this segment. For those of us who call ourselves Dylan fans, when the Nobel Prize was announced, we wondered what would come next. Would Dylan fulfill the final requirement of accepting the award and give the required lecture to the Nobel Foundation? It would be so unlike him, we thought. Or would he simply not show up? That also would be unlike him. He always shows up. Well, last week, 
Dylan did what only Dylan would do. He released a recorded speech to the Nobel Foundation. It was, among other things, part autobiography, part music history, and in the end, a radical defense of classic literature. From the Odyssey to Moby Dick. Dylan began the talk by puzzling over the question of whether or not his music is actually literature. He wasn't at all certain. When I received the Nobel Prize for Literature, I got to wondering exactly how my songs related to literature. I wanted to reflect on it and see where the connection was. I'm going to try to articulate that to you, and most likely it will go in a roundabout way. But I hope what I say will be worthwhile and purposeful. He then plunged knee-deep into the roots of his art and the artists that triggered his life's journey. If I was to go back to the dawning of it all, I guess I'd have to start with Buddy Holly. Buddy died when I was about 18 and he was 22. From the moment I first heard him, I felt akin. I felt related, like he was an older brother. I even thought I resembled him. Buddy played the music that I loved, the music I grew up on, country western, rock and roll, and rhythm and blues. Three separate strands of music that he intertwined and infused into one genre, one brand. And Buddy wrote songs, songs that had beautiful melodies and imaginative verses. And he sang great, he sang in more than a few voices. He was the archetype, everything I wasn't and wanted to be. I saw him only but once, and that was a few days before he was gone. I had to travel a hundred miles to get to see him play, and I wasn't disappointed. He was powerful and electrifying, and had a commanding presence. I was only six feet away. He was mesmerizing. I watched his face, his hands, the way he tapped his foot, his big black glasses, the eyes behind the glasses, the way he held his guitar, the way he stood, his neat suit, everything about him. He looked older than 22. Something about him seemed permanent and he filled me with conviction. Then out of the blue, the most uncanny thing happened. He looked me right straight dead in the eye, and he transmitted something, something I didn't know what, and it gave me the chills. Dylan continued to walk us through his musical birth and growth. I think it was a day or two after that that his plane went down, and somebody, somebody I'd never seen before, handed me a Lead Belly record with the song Cotton Fields on it. And that record changed my life right then and there, transported me into a world I'd never known. It was like an explosion went off, like I'd been walking in darkness, and all of a sudden the darkness was illuminated. It was like somebody laid hands on me. I must have played that record a hundred times. And we're going to go out now with one of his compositions from one of his blues records, It's Not Dark Yet. He recorded this with Daniel Lenoir, the man who I think put you two on the map. When the Joshua Tree was recorded, it was Daniel Lenoir's influence that turned you two from a sort of a punk New Age band to an international world-class band. This is Our American Stories, Bob Dylan's story, the Nobel Prize, his speech after these messages. Shadows are falling And I've been here all day Too hot to sleep And time is running away Feel like my soul has 
turn into steel I've still got the scars at the Sunday nail There's not even room enough to be anywhere It's not dark yet But it's getting there And my sense of humanity has gone down the drain. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. You're gonna have to serve somebody Well, you will have to serve somebody Yes Well, it might be the devil It might be the Lord You You'll have to serve somebody This is Our American Stories and you can judge a man's writing particularly songwriting by the number of covers that his writing spawns. And my goodness, no one had more covers than Bob Dylan as a writer, but the Beatles, nobody. Only the Beatles had more, again, as writers. And we're talking about Bob Dylan, and we're talking about his Nobel speech, which was just remarkable, indeed so good, that we want to share it with you. And we now dig into the time that Dylan spent talking about his life as a journeyman and a craftsman and the early tug of American roots music from blues to bluegrass. I hadn't left home yet, but I couldn't wait to. I wanted to learn this music and meet the people who played it. Eventually I did leave, and I did learn to play those songs. They were different than the radio songs that I'd been listening to all along. They were more vibrant and truthful to life. With radio songs, a performer might get a hit with a roll of the dice or a fall of the cards but that didn't matter in the folk world. Everything was a hit. All you had to do was be well-versed and be able to play the melody. Some of these songs were easy, some not. I had a natural feeling for the ancient ballads and country blues. But everything else I had to learn from scratch. And I was playing for small crowds, sometimes no more than four or five people in a room or on a street corner. You had to have a wide repertoire, and you had to know what to play and when. Some songs were intimate, some you had to shout to be heard. By listening to all the early folk artists and singing the songs yourself, you pick up the vernacular, you internalize it, you sing it in the ragtime blues, work songs, Georgia Sea Shanties, the Appalachian ballads and cowboy songs. You hear all the finer points and you learn the details. You know what it's all about, taking a pistol out, putting it back in your pocket, whipping your way through traffic, talking in the dark. You know that Stagger Lee was a bad man and that Frankie was a good girl. You know that Washington is a bourgeois town and you heard the deep-pitched voice of John the Revelator and you saw the Titanic sink in a boggy creek and your pals with the wild Irish rover and the wild colonial boy. You heard the muffled drums and the fifes that played lully. 
You've seen the lusty Lord Donald stick a knife in his wife, and a lot of your comrades have been wrapped in white linen. I had all the vernacular down. I knew the rhetoric. None of it went over my head. The devices, the techniques, the secrets, the mysteries, and I knew all the deserted roads that it traveled on too. I could make it all connect and move with the current of the day. When I started writing my own songs, the folk lingo was the only vocabulary that I knew, and I used it. This tutorial on mastery of craft wasn't finished. Indeed, it had only just begun. Dylan then proceeded to tell us the larger canvas from which he drew inspiration, literature, and the very best novels that were once a fundamental part of every American school kid's life. Rarely, if ever, has the Western canon been more eloquently defended. But I had something else as well. I had principles and sensibilities and an informed view of the world. And I had had that for a while. Learned it all in grammar school. Don Quixote, Ivanhoe, Robinson Crusoe, Gulliver's Travels, Tales of Two Cities, all the rest. Typical grammar school reading. They gave you a way of looking at life, an understanding of human nature, and a standard to measure things by. I took all that with me when I started composing lyrics. And the themes from those books work their way into many of my songs, either knowingly or unintentionally. I wanted to write songs unlike anything anybody ever heard. And these themes were fundamental. One of the works of literature that Dylan talked about in this great speech is the epic poem by Homer, The Odyssey, of all things. But it was relevant to Dylan and alive to Dylan And he thinks it's still alive today, that story and the eternal themes. Take a listen. The Odyssey is a great book whose themes have worked its way into the ballads of a lot of songwriters. Homeward Bound, Green, Green Grass of Home, Home on the Range, and my songs as well. The Odyssey is a strange, adventurous tale of a grown man trying to get home after fighting in a war. He's on that long journey home and it's filled with traps and pitfalls. He's cursed to wander. He's always getting carried out to sea, always having close calls. Huge chunks of boulders rock his boat. He angers people he shouldn't. There's troublemakers in his crew. Treachery. His men are turned into pigs, and then they're turned back into younger, more handsome men. He's always trying to rescue somebody. He's a traveling man, but he's making a lot of stops. He's stranded on a desert island. He finds deserted caves and he hides in them. He meets giants that say, I'll eat you last. And he escapes from giants. He's trying to get back home, but he's tossed and turned by the winds. Restless winds, chilly winds, unfriendly winds. He travels far and then he gets blown back. He's always being warned of things to come, touching things he's told not to. There's two roads to take. And they're both bad, both hazardous. On one you could drown, and on the other you could starve. He goes into the narrow straits with foaming whirlpools that swallow him, meets six-headed monsters with sharp fangs. Thunderbolts strike at him, overhanging branches that he makes a leap to reach for to save himself from a raging river. Goddesses and gods protect him, but some others want to kill him. He changes identities. He's exhausted. He falls asleep, and he's woken up by the sound of laughter. 
He tells his story to strangers. He's been gone 20 years. He was carried off somewhere and left there. Drugs have been dropped into his wine. It's been a hard road to travel. In a lot of ways, some of these same things have happened to you. You too have had drugs dropped into your wine. You too have shared a bed with the wrong woman. You too have been spellbound by magical voices, sweet voices with strange melodies. You too have come so far and have been so far blown back. And you've had close calls as well. You have angered people you should not have. And you too have rambled this country all around. And you've also felt that ill wind, the wind that blows you no good. And that's still not all of it. When he gets back home, things aren't any better. Scoundrels have moved in and are taking advantage of his wife's hospitality. And there's too many of them. And though he's greater than them all, and the best at everything, best carpenter, best hunter, best expert on animals, best seaman, his courage won't save him, but his trickery will. All these stragglers will have to pay for desecrating his palace. He'll disguise himself as a filthy beggar, and a lowly servant kicks him down the steps with arrogance and stupidity. The servant's arrogance revolts him, but he controls his anger. He's one against a hundred, but they'll all fall, even the strongest. He was nobody, and when it's all said and done, when he's home at last, he sits with his wife, and he tells her the stories. And my goodness, you want this guy teaching your literature class, don't you? And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Bob Dylan, his explication, his explanation of Moby Dick may be the greatest of all time, a story we all know, but not really, not after we listen to Bob Dylan talk about it. We're going to go out with more covers, and this one, one of the best of all. Dylan had often said that after he heard Jimi Hendrix sing all along the Watchtower, he had to sing it different. There must be some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there Drink my wine Come and dig my earth None will ever own the mine Nobody of it is worth Get it. 
This is Our American Stories. You're listening to Axl Rose. Guns N' Roses, Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, everybody covered Dylan. The most covered songwriter of all time besides the Beatles, but there were three songwriters in the Beatles. Dylan did it by himself. And let's return to that great Nobel speech. And we get up next to Moby Dick, and we get up close as Dylan talks about the impact of literature on his life and this book. Moby Dick is a fascinating book. A book that's filled with scenes of high drama and dramatic dialogue. The book makes demands on you. The plot is straightforward. The mysterious Captain Ahab, captain of a ship called the Pequod, an egomaniac with a peg leg, pursuing his nemesis, the great white whale Moby Dick, who took his leg. And he pursues him all the way from the Atlantic, around the tip of Africa, and into the Indian Ocean. He pursues the way around both sides of the earth. It's an abstract goal, nothing concrete or definite. He calls Moby the emperor, sees him as the embodiment of evil. Ahab's got a wife and child back in Nantucket that he reminisces about now and again. You can anticipate what will happen. The ship's crew is made up of men of different races, and any one of them who sights the whale will be given the reward of a gold coin. A lot of zodiac symbols, religious allegory, stereotypes. Ahab encounters other whaling vessels, presses the captains for details about Moby. Have they seen him? There's a crazy prophet, Gabriel, on one of the vessels, and he predicts Ahab's doom. Says Moby is the incarnate of a shaker god, and that any dealings with him will lead to disaster. He says that to Captain Ahab. Another ship's captain, Captain Boomer, He lost an arm to Moby, but he tolerates that, and he's happy to have survived. He can't accept Ahab's lust for vengeance. This book tells how different men react in different ways to the same experience. A lot of Old Testament biblical allegory. Gabriel, Rachel, Jeroboam, Bildah, Elijah, pagan names as well. Tashtego, Flask, Dagu, Fleece, Starbuck, Stub. Martha's Vineyard, the pagans are idol worshippers. Some worship little wax figures, some wooden figures. Some worship fire. The Pequod is the name of an Indian tribe. Moby Dick is a seafaring tale. One of the men, the narrator, says, call me Ishmael. Somebody asks him where he's from. He says, it's not down on any map. True places never are. Stubb gives no significance to anything says everything is predestined. Ishmael's been on a sailing ship his entire life, calls the sailing ships his Harvard and Yale. He keeps his distance from people. A typhoon hits the Pequod. Captain Ahab thinks it's a good omen. Starbuck thinks it's a bad omen, considers killing Ahab. As soon as the storm ends, a crew member falls from the ship's mast and drowns, foreshadowing what's to come. A Quaker pacifist priest who is actually a bloodthirsty businessman, tells Flask, some men who receive injuries are led to God. Others are led to bitterness. Everything is mixed in. All the myths, the Judeo-Christian Bible, Hindu myths, British legends, St. George, Perseus, Hercules, they're all whalers. Greek mythology, the gory business of cutting up a whale. Lots of facts in this book. Geographical knowledge. Whale oil, good for coronation of royalty. 
noble families in the whaling industry. Whale oil is used to anoint the kings, history of the whale, phrenology, classical philosophy, pseudo-scientific theories, justification for discrimination, everything thrown in, and none of it hardly rational. Highbrow, lowbrow, chasing illusion, chasing death. The great white whale, white as a polar bear, white as a white man, the emperor, the nemesis, the embodiment of evil. And by what, by the way, what a book. Pick it up, read it sometime, and you want to after listening to Dylan talk about it. And then in this part of the speech, Dylan closed things out and tied everything together. So what does it all mean? Myself and a lot of other songwriters have been influenced by these very same themes. And they can mean a lot of different things. If a song moves you, that's all that's important. I don't have to know what a song means. I've written all kinds of things into my songs, and I'm not going to worry about it, what it all means. When Melville put all his Old Testament biblical references, scientific theories, Protestant doctrines, and all that knowledge of the sea and sailing ships and whales into one story, I don't think he would have worried about it either, what it all means. John Donne as well, the poet-priest who lived in the time of Shakespeare, who wrote these words, the cestos and abidos of her breasts, not of two lovers, but two loves, the nests. I don't know what it means either, but it sounds good, and you want your songs to sound good. When Odysseus in the Odyssey visits the famed warrior Achilles in the underworld, Achilles, who traded a long life full of peace and contentment for a short one full of honor and glory, tells Odysseus, there was all mistake. I just died, that's all. There was no honor, no immortality, and that if he could, he would choose to go back and be a lowly slave to a tenant farmer on earth rather than be what he is, a king in the land of the dead. That whatever his struggles of life were, they were preferable to being here in this dead place. And that's what songs are too. Our songs are alive in the land of the living. But songs are unlike literature. They're meant to be sung, not read. The words in Shakespeare's plays were meant to be acted on the stage, just as lyrics and songs are meant to be sung, not read on a page. And I hope some of you get the chance to listen to these lyrics the way they were intended to be heard, in concert or on record or however people are listening to songs these days. I return once again to Homer, who says, Sing in me, O muse, and through me tell the story. And luckily for all of us, Dylan came of age at a time that kids got to read these classics. We all did. Their universality is sorely missing as literature has devolved into identity, politics, grievance, and self-help. What Dylan's work would have been like without these influences, we'll never know. And to all of you Dylan doubters, this speech might just have you rethinking your position. And so we end this segment with a suggestion. Get out the lyrics to some of Dylan's great songs and even some of his lesser known songs and sing them. Sing them and you will know them. Sing them and you will come to love them. Sing them and you will somehow feel yourself connected to the great literature, the great stories of the ages. This is Our American Stories. Bob Dylan, the man, the artist, 
I think summarized as beautifully as I've ever heard anyone summarize the meaning of literature. More after these messages. People call, say, beware, doll, you're bound to fall, you thought they were all kidding you. You used to laugh about everybody that was hanging out. Now you don't talk so loud. Now you don't seem so proud. About having to be scrounging your next meal. How does it feel? How does it feel to be without a home? Like a complete unknown. Like a rock. stories and it's time for our this day in history segment as always brought to us by the great folks at hillsdale college a great place to study all the things that matter in life all the things that are beautiful in life philosophy history the art sciences they take sports seriously at hillsdale too as they should and of course if you can't get to hillsdale hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses and there are 16 or 17 of them available. You can get yourself the college education you never got. And by the way, I went to a great law school and learned more from their Constitution course than in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. That's hillsdale.edu. That's where you can go to see all that they do. And on this day in history, Fanny Farmer, the mother of level measurements, opened her cooking school in 1902. Cooking in the late 1800s was unpredictable, tiresome, and difficult. Recipes were passed down in families, but often contained vague, if any, actual measurements. If the ingredients were named, home cooks might have been directed to add a pinch or a dash, or to make a pie crust. On January 7, 1896, a young woman from Boston changed everything when she published her first cookbook. Cooking Fanny Merritt Farmer's self-published tome, the 1896 Boston Cooking School Cookbook, was 600 pages and contained almost 1,500 recipes and sold for $2. I asked Ken Albala, professor of history and food studies at University of Pacific in California, 
if what history says about Fannie Farmer is accurate. Fannie Farmer is usually credited with having introduced measurements to cooking and a list of ingredients and basically the modern recipe format. That's not quite true. Um, There were measurements before, and in fact, some authors use precise measurements five centuries before. Um, What she does introduce is the level measuring cups. So if you take a cup of flour or sugar or something, she says to use the flat end of a knife and scrape it off to get a level measure. And the assumption was that cooking is not an art, it's a science, and that if you get your measurements exact, you're going to have the same results every time, which of course is not true because ovens are erratic and ingredients change um, depending on the weather. Flour especially, really, most of the world me- uh, measures it by weight <laughs> for some reason in the U.S. And my, my instinct says, and I can't really prove this, but is that we had people selling measuring cups and that's why it caught on in the U.S., is that we assumed, you know, every time you scoop a cup of flour, as long as you give it a level measure, somehow it's going to come out uh, to be the same thing all the time. And, you know, that's just a, a, a pretense, and it matters in baking, perhaps, but certainly no other type of cooking does it really matter how much you throw in of everything. So our so reputation in that respect is a little... A little skewed, I would say. Um, I think what is fascinating about her is, of course, she was a businesswoman, you know, and um, she didn't found the Boston Cooking School. She inherited it from uh, Mrs. Lincoln, who actually even had a cookbook preceding hers. Uh, but for some reason, hers is the one that caught on. Um, the publishers didn't think it would. In fact, they made her pay for the first print run, which is sort of sort of not a nice thing to do for an author. It says, we don't really trust you, but, you know, maybe if you make the money, um, we'll, we'll, we'll publish it, but you have to take the risk. And the irony of it is, of course, um, it sold millions of copies, and she got all the, she held the copyright, so she got all the profits from that, not the publisher. Fanny Farmer's cookbook sold over 4 million copies during her lifetime. Fanny planned on going to college, but a stroke at the age of 16 left her paralyzed and forced her to stay at home. Eventually, she would walk again, though she would always maintain a limp. Here's Professor Albala. And I think it's probably why, after doing the cookbook, which is very well known, she did a book of convalescent cookery, um, what you should feed sick people. And of course, the idea, I've actually, this is something I've actually written about, so it's the only thing I can speak of you know, with direct authority about Fanny Farmer, is that um, I think her own personal experience gave her some insights into what to feed people um, when they're uh, sick or convalescing. And what struck me as being very fascinating is the idea of what you feed people who are recover recuperating is that doesn't change over centuries and centuries. It's basically, you know, very soft, white, mushy food that was presumed to be easy to digest, um, something comparable to baby food, if you want to think of it that way. So a lot of mush, a lot of milk toast, um, puddings and things that, that we might not today think were, you know, necessarily so good for you or nutritious, some concentrated broths, things like that, that were thought to be easy to digest. But she did a whole cookbook based on um, convalescent cookery, I think, just after the turn of the century. It's maybe 1904 or five, somewhere in there. And we still don't really, really know what foods are best for people who are convalescing. You know, we, we know they need vitamins. We know they don't need things that are very difficult to digest. But they had this idea that you could couldn't give um, sick people spices or you couldn't give them, you know, uh, stimulants of any kind. So no coffee and things like that. And that, we don't know that <laughs> there's no scientific basis really for that. You know, spices aren't necessarily bad for you or hard to digest. 
So how does Professor Albala feel about exact measurements in cooking? If you look at older cookbooks, quite often they won't give you exact measurements. They'll say, you know, definitely a pinch of this. Or, and I think that's actually a perfectly fine way to cook. I cook that way, and I write cookbooks that way also. Um, some people find it infuriating. But I think, you know, if you're going to really cook you should learn what you like. You know, if you like a lot of salt in your food, then you will understand how much to add. You know, why should you, why should anyone trust my taste? The thing that I find amazing is, you know, a recipe will say, bake this for 15 minutes. And someone looks in the oven and it says, and they look at the dish, it's clearly not cooked yet. And they take it out anyway. And they say, well, the recipe says 15 minutes. It's like, well, no, trust your senses. You know, trust what, um, what you can learn through experimentation. And eventually you'll find out what you like. So, so I think a, an exact recipe of which Fanny Farmer is not the inventor, but, but certainly uh, contributed to our sense that cooking should be a science. I think what that does is comparable to what a, a GPS device does. You know, it, it gives you the directions. You come to depend on it. You never really learn where you are. You never really learn how to navigate. Or you, even if you did know how to navigate, you come to trust the GPS device rather than your, your own instinct. And it, it unskills you. It really, I think people who follow recipes also come to trust them so explicitly and think, oh, if I veer one inch from this, the whole dish is going to be ruined, which 99% of the time, that's not the case. Maybe if you're doing cakes or very delicate pie crusts, you know, a little, a little bit too much of anything might ruin it, but, um, but it's still going to be edible. It's still going to be fine. And I think for most recipes, you know, anything you cook, it's not really going to matter. Fanny Farmer revolutionized the domestic cooking world. But Professor Albala leaves us with this cookbook caution. So I think in a, in a sense, I would, I would almost blame Fanny Farmer for the use of, for the impression that exact recipes are the only way to cook. And the cookbook authors must give you an exact measurement, an exact cooking time, a temperature in the oven or stove top. And that, that sort of thing really isn't under anyone's control. And we have the impression that it is. And I think it's made us... Um, de-skilled. I think in the long run, she's actually contributed to our, <laughs> our not knowing how to cook so much because we depend on exact recipes, pseudo-scientific recipes. Um, and I can understand why modern cookbook authors follow in, in her footsteps. It's because they want to copyright their exact wording and their measurements and all this stuff, and they want to give the impression to the reader that this is going to work. All you have to do is trust me and follow it. When what they're doing is preventing the cook from trusting themselves and trusting their own instinct and feeling the pan, feeling the spices and throwing them in and tasting it and seeing if it needs more, you know? That sort of thing is, I think, essential to cooking and especially cooking so you like what you make, you know? is not trusting someone else's taste. I'm so hungry, mama And I know you feel the same way too Well, it smells so good now I just gotta have some food in 1902, Fanny Farmer left the Boston Cooking School to open Miss Farmer's School of Cookery, aimed not at professional cooks, but at training housewives. Though she suffered another paralytic stroke later in life, she continued lecturing. In fact, 10 days before her death in 1915, she delivered a lecture from her wheelchair. A revised version of her book, now known as Fanny Farmer's Cookbook, is still in print today. 
over 100 years after its first printing. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And thanks for that, as always, Greg. And by the way, my grandfather, Leo, taught me uh, measurements, measurements. Um, he was, here's the tomatoes, learn how to taste it, and make it different every night. And you want to throw in the sausage and the meatball, throw it in there. You want to put in some extra colic, go for it. And so it was always intuitive, but Fanny taught a lot of people how to cook, and especially housewives. Great story. Our This Days in History is, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Check out what they do at hillsdale.edu. Fanny Farmer's story here on Our American Stories.